My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast. My name is Scott Wampler. I am the co-host of this show, joined as always by my devastatingly handsome co-host, Mr. Eric David Vespi Esquire. Excellent. I didn't know you went to law school, but I'm very impressed. We're all doing Is that what Esquire means? I actually have no idea what Esquire means. Yeah, it means you're a lawyer. As, I mean, as far oh. as I know, I'm very, I'm, I'm not very quick though. So that, that could just be a lie. Somebody oh, told me. Okay. We have an exciting show lined up today. We are revisiting a Stephen King property that neither Eric or I have checked out in a long time. And we are joined by a very exciting person who's brought that to us. Our guest today is a former film critic whose work you may have seen in LA Weekly or The Village Voice. These days, she co-hosts the Switchblade Sisters podcast and was the screenwriter on last year's Black Christmas for Blumhouse. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Ms. April Wolf. Hi. How are you doing today, April? I'm as good as I can be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's all it's all a matter of r- relativity these days. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's the anthem of our times. As good as I could possibly be. <laughs> Still mm-hmm. kicking. Still kicking, yep. not coughing. All right. You have... Uh, you brought us a very interesting and sort of lower tier, not in terms of quality, just but in terms of. I was like, let's let's hold off. On <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, you, uh, tell us what you brought. What is your what was your choice chosen property? Um, my chosen property is Children of the Corn, um, adapted mm. from a short story um, that was published in I think Playboy or Penthouse. Penthouse. Yeah, that's what right. it was for the Night Shift collection. Back when King was infamously getting his start in a number of men's magazines. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll get into this in a in a second, but uh, you know, this published in 1977, which is after he had his uh, his big debut. Most of the Night Shift smut magazine stuff uh, were published like before Carrie. So this, yeah, no, this is an interesting one because this is when he's actually finding his voice. But we'll we'll dive into that in a second. All, well, we'll get into it in a second. I got a lot to say about that one. But um, uh, April, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your, your your Stephen King origin story? Like, how did you begin reading King, being aware of him? You know, where did you start? Uh, well, I mean, I was, like any kid, pretty obsessed with him. Um, I remember... I, I always read like Mary Higgins Clark stuff and, you know, a bunch of Christopher Pike things while other kids were reading, you know, whatever dumb shit they were reading. And, <laughs> and then I got a copy of the dead zone somehow. Mm. I think maybe m- my mom had read it and I'd always just stolen her books to read. And the dead zone just changed me. It was like obviously too far advanced for me, but also I was just riveted by it. And it's still, I think, kind of one of my favorite books that uh, handles like two um, divergent and then intersecting narratives. And, you know, like this, this idea that like fate is there and it's going to meet. And I, I connected with his, uh, with his thoughts on fate 
And I, you know, cause I came from like a very fatalistic childhood just because I was raised very Catholic and, um, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you know, like there's, there's just right. a lot of symbolism and things that were in his stories that just connected to me in a way that oh, children's literature never did. So I was, I was pretty obsessed with him. And then when that it mini miniseries came out, cool. I was just like, the happiest child. <laughs> I still stand by it. And I know that people are like, oh, it's terrible. But I, I absolutely love it as a mini series. And I think it I think it was one of my favorite things to watch as a kid and to be freaked out by um, while I was babysitting. And um, yeah. And then also the first m Stephen King movie that I'd actually seen the adaptation was Cujo. And I was extremely, extremely young because my grandparents raised me in they watched horror movies. And so that's what we watched. And um, yeah, that, that scarred me. I actually talked about that on that um, scarred for life podcast about how, how much it, <laughs> right. True. It scarred me so much that into my thirties, my family still makes fun of how scared I was of Cujo. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I still have never gotten over my fear of dogs after that movie. He, he just kills me. <laughs> I love Stephen King so much, obviously. But Did you see Cujo before or after the It miniseries? Oh, I saw it long before. I saw it like right after it came to like to be available on home video or something. Right. So right. I was like like a toddler. So I was so young. I was such I was just like a baby watching that and it was like not the movie that I should have been watching. But have you seen the behind the scenes pictures of the uh the stunt actor in the dog suit? Like in, 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 it's like if you want to yeah. break yourself of, of that childhood fear like find those pictures because it, it looks like you remember in scrooged whenever yeah. bill murray's like playing the dog on the tv show or whatever yeah. that's yeah. what it looks like and so when they they very artistically cut around it to make it super scary in the movie but find those pictures you won't be scared of cujo anymore i promise it's funny though like because i rewatched that movie a few months ago and i was like this is a fantastic movie and i am i don't like cujo i think is just so well constructed just like short sweet and brutal right. and in the performances in that i was just i was starting to change my mind i'm just like god what is my favorite stephen king adaptation because that one's pretty fucking good i think you're the first guest we've had who read the dead zone first really if, and interestingly yeah a lot of people read cujo first the the constant that we see we're we're hearing from from guests as we work our way through this thing is that a lot of people came to their first King book because they liked the covers, you know, those, mm -hmm. those old uh, painted hardback covers or their, and their parents had them and that's what drew them in. But yeah, for whatever reason, Cujo seemed like it grabbed a bunch of people. The dead zone though is I don't think I read that one until much later on. And I, I don't think I would have been able to make heads or tails of it when I was a kid, you know, I all mean, the stuff with the politician and whatnot. I mean, I was a weird kid. <laughs> I was like a real weird kid. I had no friends, so I had a lot of time to figure some things out. <laughs> well, even the way you described it about, you know, the, the intersecting narratives and, and the idea of fate, like that would have absolutely been above my comprehension level at the, the time that I started reading King. I, I don't oh. think I read Dead Zone until I was in high school, probably. I mean, I used to read words. the Bible every night before bed. So, Whew. 
Well, that's a pretty deep cut. <laughs> yeah. That's a I scary haven't heard of it. There's lots of gore in that book. Yeah, Who wrote terrible. that? I haven't, I'll put it on my list. I haven't okay. got, gotten around to that one. But Children of the Corn is a very interesting pick. It's a King property that's had upwards of 10 movies, sequels, TV movies. There's a, there's a remake coming out. Um, but despite that enduring... Can you say popularity? Because I don't think it's very popular, but it must be turning a profit. So it has some amount of some amount of popularity. I don't really think about it as a major part of the King. What would you uh, cinematic universe? Oh, but maybe that's maybe that's because it's been watered down by so many sequels. Um, I've honestly never seen the sequels. Yeah, me neither. I've watched a few. I couldn't tell you which ones I watched, but there was a, a period of time in my high school years where there was a new Children of the Corn on the blockbuster shelves every like six months, it felt like. Yeah. And they each had like, you know, a, an intriguing cover. It was always like, you know, creepy kids holding a, a scythe or, you know, some something disturbing. And they were never any good. But it is it does blow my mind that by far in a way of any other King property, this is the one that's had the most adaptations there's there's nothing that even comes close right we mm-hmm. were we're at 11 once ever the uh the the remake slash prequel comes out next year it's like there's nothing that comes close yeah no i don't think so no yeah. it's really weird i haven't seen the, the sequels so i probably shouldn't render an opinion here uh mm-hmm. but it seems like just looking at the cover boxes and the titles and the imagery that I have seen from them, it seems like somewhere along the line, it just basically became a slasher franchise with like Amish kids are the, are the <laughs> slasher, you know, with the wide brimmed hats and like scythes and shit. And You're right. I don't know. I wouldn't watch that. I probably watch a horror movie every day, you know, e- even if it's just like something on streaming. And I don't think that uh, I would ever be attracted to this. It just seems so kind of silly to me. You know, I don't think it's scary. <laughs> April, did you read the the short first or did you see the movie first? I think I saw the movie first. Yeah, me yeah. too. What, uh, what was it like on VHS or like I seem to remember me watching it was uh, it was a cable mainstay. Anything that was any sort of mm-hmm. popular anywhere in the, the early to mid 80s, you know, mm-hmm. became a, a constant rotation on on HBO. I, I really can only imagine that it was probably on VHS just because my, my grandparents didn't really have cable, but we had like a Rite Aid that rented out a ton of horror movies to us. So that, that's crazy because I, I have the, a similar memory where you have like these, you know, back in the olden days, the pre-Netflix days, you'd have the, the big chain stores. And then for whatever reason, like the you're right, like the pharmacy would have a, a video rental thing and they would always have the craziest fucking like deep cut weird <laughs> titles. Like I think that's where I saw Sleepaway Camp for the first time was was renting it off of, you know, some like pharmacy shelf. No, absolutely. We saw Sleepaway Camp rented from Rite Aid. It's one of the oh, earliest movies I can remember watching. I remember when the, the video boom first started happening. Um, the seven, there was a Seven Eleven near our house that had like one shelf and they rented mo- they, you know, in retrospect, they must've been like experimenting with the idea of, of renting movies. And, um, you know, if the movie itself was rented, they would put a, a sticker across the front that said rented one day, a, a very distinct memory I have from my childhood is my dad coming home from Seven Eleven one day and excitedly announcing to my mother that Seven Eleven rents movies now. My mom was like, oh, really? And he said, yeah. Uh, in fact, I saw there was a box 
Chevy Chase has a new movie out and it's called Rented. Like he completely <laughs> mistook the, the, the rented sticker as the title treatment on the fucking box. My mom gave him, she broke his balls about that for a full decade. Um, <laughs> so I want to, I want to thank the folks at Seven Eleven for, you know, uh, experimenting with VHS rentals. Cause that's, that's one of my favorite memories of my dad <laughs> from my childhood. I have uh, I remember there was this Asian grocery store that was about, a three quarter mile bike ride from my house. And I'd always go there because they had very cheap, sour, uh, sour gumballs. Mm-hmm. Okay, and no. they had like, and for whatever reason, they were like my favorite thing in the world. And I re- remember riding my bike there one, one day. And I, the most excited I've ever been in my, my childhood, it must've been 10 or 11. Um, they had, uh, or no, 11 or 12, because this was, uh, 91, 92. And he, uh, uh, they had a, uh, Terminator two had just come out on VHS. And if you remember, you couldn't really own VHSs unless you paid like a hundred bucks. They were like a hundred dollars to get it. They had one on sale, a copy brand new Terminator two copy of VHS on sale for $25. And I jumped out of my, my skin. Like I rode my bike home as fast as I could ran and told my, my mom and dad, I'm like, Hey, we, they have it for $25. And they like got as excited as me. And they're like, Holy shit. And they like, here, go, here's 25. Here's the $25. Go get it. Go get it. It was like finding (laughs) like the best bargain in the world. (laughs) And uh, like, and I remember like just speed racer, like riding on my way back, just sure that somebody would have picked up because there was like one copy in there. And I'm like, I sure somebody would have, would have bought, it while I was, you know, trying to go get the money and, and, uh, and like, I felt so triumphant when I was able to buy that movie. And, and of course I wore out the VHS, but, uh, um, Oh, I thought that was going to end with there being some sort of misunderstanding. Like it was actually $250, you know, (laughs) let me ask you all this. When was the last time you actually read the short story on which, uh, children of the corn was based? was a child i'm sure did did you <laughs> maybe reread grad it for school. this actually maybe i reread it in grad school because i was on a kick of rereading his short stories to to uh dissect um structure because i studied fiction writing in grad school so i was always I looking for lessons for uh the students that i was teaching at boise state um so yeah i think it was probably grad school uh did you happen to reread it before this show no i did not okay I reread it yesterday and was blown away by um, my memory of it is that it opens with, uh, you know, an argument between the husband and wife that are in a car traveling through Nebraska. And I suppose this is a a good time to lay out the plot for anyone who hasn't read it. The husband and wife, they're traveling through uh, Nebraska as they're they're driving up the highway uh, through fields of corn. A little kid comes bolting out of the out of the rows they hit him and when they get out of the car to inspect they realize the the kid's throat's been slit they go into town to sort of investigate what may have you know led to this or at least you know turn the the kid's body over to the cops and that's when they discover that the whole town is deserted and has been for about a decade and a half and the kids have taken over they've formed some sort of uh, religious death cult built around the idea of he who walks behind the rows who is essentially a big corn demon that lives out in the out in the <laughs> mm-hmm. fields and needs to be appeased and then everyone dies that's that's basically it <laughs> but i was struck on on rereading this how vicious the interplay between the husband and wife is i had forgotten that 
I remember them being at odds and it being like sort of a troubled marriage. But in the text, the guy is like thinking about hitting his wife in the car. It's really rough to uh, to read. Did you remember yeah, it that it's, way, it's, Eric? Yeah, well, it's like if uh, – uh, well, I read it when I was a kid and then I recently – you know, like literally recently as of finished it this morning recently, uh, reread it uh, for the podcast and – uh, I had the same thing. It was like if the characters from a marriage story like happened to <laughs> to stumble across a child death cult in, in Nebraska. It's like, yeah. hey, these two people fucking hate each other. Mm-hmm. Like they hate each other. And and uh, you know, and then they hit this kid in the road. And what's so crazy is they hate each other so much that that's like a blip on the radar for them. Like they <laughs> right. put the kid's body in the trunk and then they continue to argue about like what (laughs) what where to go and what direction and and all this stuff and they have a a dead like 13 year old kid in their trunk it it is so bonkers reading it now and it it is it's fascinating it's a really interesting character dynamic and it's completely the opposite of what they do in the movie in the movie it's a very loving new fresh couple um sure but uh but yeah no that that was definitely a a shock to the system yeah reading reading that this morning i mean i i think you can tell why they decided to kind of remake the relationship for the adaptation, because especially at that time, I just do not think that kind of antagonism would fly and holding a, um, like a mainstream horror movie um, together for audiences. Just everyone dies. Everyone is terrible. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Like Uh, Ari Aster might be able to get away with it, but yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think, I mean, I know that they're doing um, the new Children of the Corn. I think is it like Kurt Wimmer is doing or something. Um, Uh But I guess the only thing that I can um, hope is that they maybe do a a closer adaptation to it because that's actually the movie that i want to see that is really terrible and terrifying and everyone (laughs) dies except for like maybe a pregnant girl who's just like well i hated them anyway you know like so weird (laughs) (laughs) and you you might get something like that because my understanding is that uh he's kurt has done an interview or something and he said that that this is more of a prequel than a a sequel so it feels like we're getting gonna get the story of the the generation before, you know, which is another interesting thing about the short is that unlike the movie, which, you know, the, the revolt happens fairly quickly before the, the main characters come into play in the short, it's established very clearly that it's been over 10 years and that a lot of the kids there are the kids of the original kids. That's even more crazy to me, like in more scary that it's not like, oh, somebody stumbled upon something that just happened. It's something that's been happening for what? 12, 13, 14 years, mm-hmm. and nobody's noticed it because it's in a teeny tiny, you know, off the road, you know, town. And yeah. Like, so what could be out there? What could be happening, you know, that we just don't know about? Yeah. I think like the biggest point is that Nebraska is scary. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> yes. Yet another reason not to go to Nebraska. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, I come from Michigan and I just know that like <clears throat> the backwoods of Michigan is still terrifying to me <laughs> where it's just like, oh, it's just a, a, a broken down red barn, um, a bunch of like uh, old rusted out cars and an apple orchard that seems to be overgrown and nothing else. Uh <laughs> No gas station for many miles and probably a militia. So, <laughs> <laughs> or four. Mm-hmm. The the dynamic of the of of Bert and Vicky, the husband and wife. Not only is it so poisonous, but 
when the film rights to this were optioned, King King wrote his own script, and the his draft of the script was rejected because uh, it opened with, according according to um, George Goldsmith, uh, thirty five pages of Bert and Vicky just arguing in the car before it got <laughs> anywhere, and they're like, "No, we need to. We're going to have to re, you know repackage this for for the cinematic presentation of this story." Mm-hmm. And I do wonder, like. Why is it so important to King on this particular story that the husband and wife are are so at odds? I don't have any theories on that. I don't I, I found it kind of off-putting in in revisiting it, but April, you're a you're a fan of this dynamic. I'm wondering if you have any theories on why he might be so, pardon the term, married to that approach. Well, I think because it's like within that approach it probably feels more personal to him, I think. And it probably feels more realistic to a kind of relationship in that sense. Cause if you look at the relationship that they have on screen, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful and, you know, bright and happy. And so people want to like root for it. And I think that he wants to like systematically remove anything that you want to root for. And he wants to, he wants to punish this man and I think that's sure. why he's he's so interested in it because he wants to punish Bert and he can't be accurately punished unless we know like the depth of like a that he like, you know, wants to hit his wife and like is, you know, just kind of like an angry person and she's kind of getting on his nerves. And and then so like later on when he, you know, in the story finds that that she's that she's gone and dead in like this really brutal manner, I think it's the it's kind of like the only way that he can kind of see and hold up a mirror to his own brutality and the kinds of um, terrible things that like different power dynamics uh, wrought. I think the entire point of his story is just very different from what the entire point of the film is. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that definitely tracks. I think there's, there's also something tonally there, uh, which kind of fits into what you were saying about not wanting to give anybody, give the audience somebody to root for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because tonally, these guys, y- y- this is a toxic relationship. It's a mean spirited relationship. It's, you know, it's bad on both sides. Like it's rotten, right? In the re- that town is rotten. Everything about that story is, is wrong headed and controlling and scary. And by putting in, uh, the super duper happy couple, I, I guess the idea is to contrast that, but it, you know, it really, I think as it shows in the movie, you can't do that with, and then, and then uh, fuck over those happy people. They have to have a win, right? They, yeah. that, that version of the story can't end the way the book does with everybody dying. It has to end with them setting the cornrows on fire and, mm-hmm. and beating the the monster, you mm-hmm. know? And both both approaches are, are valid, but you know, you're. I think there is a reason why that story sticks in the minds of so many people who, who've read it, and I think that that broken relationship is is uh, part of it. You're both kind of selling me on liking this approach more. <laughs> I, I, I think I was just caught off guard by it because it had been so long since I read it. It it reminded me of in a very in a very uh, similar way when Prince died. Uh, that day, like they screened Purple Rain here in Austin mm-hmm. and um, a bunch of us went to see Purple Rain and I had only seen it when I was like a kid or something. I hadn't seen it in many years. And when that screening started, like everyone was fucking hyped. They're, they're there to see Purple Rain. They're, you know, we're celebrating the, the passing of 
prince or, you know, celebrating his memory, I should say, not his passing. Yeah. Um, it's like, damn, dude. But there's this, <laughs> there's the scene in the movie where the kid uh, slaps um, Apollonia and it's, it's brutal. And the whole audience gasped. It mm-hmm. was like, this is a, this is a theater filled with people that are, you know, Prince fans and that know Purple Rain, they've seen it. And it was almost like everyone had sort of forgotten it. And you're like, oh, that's right. That's what this is. That's, it's not, um, it's a little rougher around the edges maybe than we remembered. And I had a very similar reaction to it, to Children of the Corn rereading it. I just kind of not remembered that about it and it caught yeah. me off guard. But you guys aren't selling me on it. <laughs> I, 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 I think you're right. It's good. Right. Yeah, no, it's a great short. I mean, it, it is It is kind of the perfect, it, it's the epitome of what a great Stephen King short story is, right? Because it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's what, it's like 30 some odd pages. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quick. It paints a very vivid picture. You know, you feel, you smell the corn, you smell the, you know, the, the weird, you know, acrid fertilizer that they describe, you know, you can almost sense that everything's wrong in that town and, and the imagery of like the, of the children approaching the car is it's very striking. It's set up so well to me. Rereading it was like kind of reinvigorating my love of, of uh, King short work and uh, makes me just want to devour all the stuff I haven't read in, you know, a 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those original collections are so good. The first few night shift skeleton crew nightmares and dreamscapes. I also will go to bat for all day. I love that one. Yeah. His, um, also his the, book on writing too, as well. Oh, um, oh yeah. Dissecting the short story and, and what that, because oftentimes I'm, I'm not enthused as much by his novels. It's his short stories that I think are just the, uh, so clever and, and structurally sound that, um, that I, I envy them greatly. <laughs> Which kind of brings us to the movie. And I think my problem with the movie is the same problem I have with most, uh, Stephen King short stories that have been translated into feature films in that they're expanded in a way that sort of robs the, the source material of what made it so powerful to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I think children of the corn is a really good example of that. I love, I love parts of this movie, but overall I'm, I don't feel like it hangs together. Yeah. I, I hadn't watched it since, uh, you know, since my teenage years, like all the way through, I think I've seen pieces of it here or there since, but you know, I watched it a lot as a kid. I watched it again in, you know, my teen years, and then I just haven't revisited it in, uh, until yesterday. And what I was struck by was how brutal the opening is. Like, mm-hmm. I wish the, the rest of the movie was was like that because you're, you're focusing on, uh, you know, Job. That, that's one of the things that they they change is they made like they gave like the sweet, innocent, you know, young kid uh, a narration, you know, which the narration doesn't work. But by doing that, you get to see the town being taken over and that that opening scene in the diner when isaac gives the nod and you know everybody's coffee's poisoned and Mm -hmm. and they just start you know killing people with machetes and scythes and stuff (laughs) it's like it's crazy effective like they kill a dude and like this you know this cute little kid gets his like face splattered with blood and watches his dad get his throat slit right in front of him and it's like it is brutal and i was like holy shit this is like something you you couldn't get through the studio system today Mm -hmm. like but like back then that that was i guess just okay and the, the hit in the car when the kid gets hit hit by the car uh is fucking brutal as well and like all that stuff i think is 
is crazy effective and still works today. I have a thing about this. I don't think that we put children in peril enough in right, yeah. movies and TV. So when it does happen, I I actually get very excited because it makes <laughs> it makes the children into characters because then they have to do something than other than being precocious, which is like such right. a terrible kind of spot that we've put child actors in. And that's kind of like a Disneyfication of things too. Of like they're just smart and sassy. And it's like, they have inner <laughs> lives. They're, they have fears and shit, you know? So I, I miss that part of things. If anyone ever lets me do that with children, I'm just going to peril all peril. <laughs> <laughs> And the kids in this movie are actually really good. John Franklin, who plays Isaac, he turns in a performance that's like, he's, you, you know that thing like when you watch a movie and there's like a kid delivering dialogue and you can tell the kid has no idea what they're saying. They're just delivering the lines, you know, yeah. like there's no meaning behind the words. When you watch Franklin in this movie, I feel like I, I feel a realness there. Like, I don't know if he understands everything he's saying, but he's selling cool. me on it. Like, yeah. the, the, he, he probably does because he was 24 years old, Scott, when he made this movie. Yeah, what? he was like 24, 25 years old. Yeah, he, he has a, a, growth hormone, a growth, uh, human growth hormone deficiency thing. Okay. So he was 24 that looked, looked like 12. So, okay, he, so, yeah, you're right. He's a little sh- he, Shakespearean. He plays Isaac so like broadly and theatrical uh, in this. And and when I looked him up, he like, he actually, I think now still teaches Shakespeare, you know, oh, he does? Uh, that, that's, that's wonderful. Job. I love yeah. that. Wow. I had no idea that kind yeah, of I explains mean, so- though. Cause I saw that he had, you know, in, in researching this, I, I saw that like the sixth or fifth or sixth children of the corn sequel is Isaac's return. Uh-huh. And I was like, Oh, I wonder who they had play Isaac. And I looked at it and it's, it's the same guy. But there's a picture of him and he looks like substantially older. And there was a brief moment in my head where I was like, huh, I guess he just he just aged very rapidly. But now this makes much. Yeah, this this makes much more sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think all the kids deliver amazing performances uh, in it. I think that uh, Courtney Gaines, who plays Malachi, is very iconic in the movie, Mm -hmm. like just that angry redhead you know him you know screaming for the outsider and you know an uh, outlander i think is what what he calls out yeah like you know all this stuff that's very iconic that said he sounds like a southern california sur- surfer dude you know he sounds like you know uh ted from bill and ted you know when he's delivering more <laughs> than two words at once you know but i'm happy that he got this role and i'm you know i think he, he uh uh filled those shoes nobly and and uh, if nothing else because uh i love him in the burbs he shows up in the burbs and uh, oh, yeah. uh, that, that I think is like, if the, anything that leads to that is, is good in my book. Did you know that I was reading his Wikipedia page and I didn't realize that he was a musician and, and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. You turn to music. <laughs> They're like on his Wikipedia is just like, he once performed live on stage with fish. And I was like, wow. Whoa. <laughs> <Good for him." laughs> he definitely, he definitely kind of has a Mick Jagger like vibe. Like the Mick Jagger's uh, redheaded stepchild yeah. vibe in in, uh, uh, in in the movie. It's the mouth. He's got a Mick Jagger mouth. It's a very a large big mouth with lots of teeth. Yeah. Very expressive. <laughs> the kid who played uh, Job, the kid named uh, Robbie Kiger, um, who I knew as a big Monster Squad fan. He's one of the members in the Monster Squad. But he, when you talk about precocious, that's that's him and his sister in this movie. You know, they they're very innocent and happy and, and, and nice. But, you know, that's pretty much the extent of their of their characters. Um, but it's interesting that they give the sister, uh, Sarah, 
like shining powers essentially she she's the one that can see you know in the book they they talk about isaac being the one that's given the sight and that's why he's able to predict things and and you know do stuff for he who walks behind the the rose and and uh you know but here it's a little girl and i i think that it's in like that that's something that that they don't really capitalize on uh, there could be a, a commentary on on how you know power structures will take and use people that they need and to secure their place in power because there is that interesting dynamic where Malachi is the muscle and really wants to be the leader um, and takes his shot when he can. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, having Isaac have, you know, his own personal seer, you know, this girl that can draw out pictures of what's going to happen in the future and him using that to control the, the other children is a really powerful idea and being scared of being, you know, un unveiled as, as a kind of a false prophet who's, you know, doesn't really have any true insight or doesn't really talk to, you know, their God, you yeah. know, just, just has this girl, you know, with the powers. I think that's a really fascinating angle that they almost set up, but then they never really do in the movie. Man, the movie I think is, it's a weird thing because you can't really compare it to the book uh, the mm-hmm. way that I feel. Like, I think that I, to me, it lives separately because I did read the short story after. So in terms of like adaptation, I like that it was just like, they made the movie that was going to sell at that time. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it, you know, is inspired by this one. And, and I appreciate, I think that kind of creativity because watching it, if I separate myself, I think that it has some interesting points to make about the kind of like, um, dumbness of adults in their you know like obliviousness <laughs> and and you know the fact that like they just like they're they're caught in their own fucking dramas so they like can't even see things um and so that like the children are these are fully realized humans and that they you know they can't keep pushing them off like that's one of the reasons why i like how they chose to do the ending for that particular type of story being that you know Bert or he's like kind of pushing Job off and like, no, go back. And then Job's like, you don't know what the fuck you're doing though. (laughs) I'm the only one who actually knows how to do this. Like the, the moment where he runs out and grabs the, the, um, the Molotov cocktail and brings it back. And he's just like, do it right this time, asshole. Like what are you doing? (laughs) I just, I appreciated that in terms of like, like you could see a kind of almost um, Spielbergian kind of influence on that of, of people being like, Oh, we need to make these children have a kind of agency um, because we, we kind of almost want this to be four quadrant in a way, even if it can't be like, we want, you know, kids to watch it. I, I wish they did more of that. Like, you're right. Like that, that is a, a highlight of, of the end. Um, Cause in the ending, in the, in the book, uh, uh, or in the short, the husband finds uh, his wife, Vicky, you know, up on like the crucifix with her eyes gouged out and like corn stalk shoved in her mouth and, you know, dead as dead can be. And, mm-hmm. uh, and here everybody is rescued and then they end up setting fire to the, to the cornfield. It's a different approach, but I do agree that that ending is um, uh, with, with that ending moment with Job, with that kid uh, is great. And it just makes me wish that there was more that they did like mm-hmm. that in, in the movie itself. Yeah. I also wish that they'd like cast more kids is like they, it, it, cause there is something also to what's scary about 
that is like nobody wants to even if a kid's coming at you with a deadly weapon like nobody wants to hit a, a child right yes you know so there there is something there about you know when you age them up it makes it a little less believable to me that that you wouldn't like just instantly like you know brain malachi <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah but they i mean they should have killed more children honestly then more children should definitely have died yeah. this this you're you're talking into like the the thing i wanted to say which was like uh when i was reading rereading the short story when um when bert comes out of the uh church and he's the kids are just swarming at that point and they're coming at the car they were all armed and i'm thinking like get in there and demolish some of these fucking kids. But then, you know, at the same time, like I think anyone naturally put in that position would be reluctant to just start throwing haymakers at a bunch of like nine year olds, you know, he is, he is calling for his wife to get their shotgun that there's a shotgun and well, fair in the thing. And can you imagine if that had, if he had decided like, fuck it, I'm going to go in that direction. And suddenly Vicky's just like blasting, you know, eight year old, you know, kids in half with a shotgun. You know? I mean, like, can you imagine if he'd gone through that that era? I'd yeah. watch it. Yeah, that's a morally interesting and problematic thing that I would be. I yeah, I would want to watch that. But you know, no one's going to make that movie though. Do you think? Like, do y'all think if circumstances being exactly the same, like let's say you walk out of that church, your partner's in the car. There's Amish kids, or not Amish kids, but they look very much like, you know, <laughs> like, let's Mennonite. Like, the Amish into this. They're not. Yes. <laughs> I'm not trying to besmirch the Amish, but uh, they're in that sort of garb. You know, I'm just I'm just painting a picture here. And they're holding scythes and sticks and rocks and pipe wrenches and shit. Do you think that you would immediately, like, launch into a heroic reaction? In, in this case, like, just fucking them up? Or trying to? Or do you think you would have that natural hesitation against fighting a kid? Yeah, you would. Well, I think if, I think depending on like, I think, how do I put this? You're going to give more time than if it was a group of adults or something. Yeah, totally. You know, surrounding your car. You'd give it, you'd give it a beat, but at at the same time, then you go, well, I am a (laughs) a grown ass man and these are all eight, nine and 10 year olds. Uh, right. you know, all I got to do is pick them up and throw them, you know, at a certain point there, there, there is that, that aspect. And if they're, you know, not, you know, listening and they're being creepy and laughing and holding up weapons and damaging the car, trying to kill your, your wife, mm-hmm. I, I think at a certain point you go, you know, all right, you know, I gave them the warning <laughs> and now I'm right. going to take advantage of my, my now size. Grounded. army. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you have any uh, favorite killer kid movies, April? Besides this, killer kid like killer I, kid movies, yeah. I I mean I do because um, it's that m- one movie, um, the who would who would kill a child? Who, who can, can kill, kill a child? child? Yeah. Oh yeah. my god, child. It's so good. Um, that's something that I think about quite a bit, and. I still, <laughs> I mean, I, I love it and I keep thinking about it and hoping that they could make something like this ever again. But did they do a remake or were they going yeah, to? Yeah. They did some, somebody, it was one of those weird, like one named directors who like never showed his face. He wore a mask or something. Yeah. It's called what? come play or want to play or something. Yeah. He did a, yeah, that, the movie showed it fantastic best. Uh, yeah, yeah. He did an intro. 
a video intro where, you know, he's wearing a mask and his name is like, you know, question marker. It's not that I can, I don't have it in front yeah. of me, but it, it's, it's a one fucking of those, like, I'm a, mis- yeah, he's like the masked magician or something of, of, uh, horror directors. And his, his remake is awful. Um, of course it like, it, it didn't understand any of the thematic elements of the original film. It all, all it wanted to do yeah. was be a shock thing. Um, so, but no, you're right. Uh, who can kill a child is, is awesome. It's, it's one of my, favorite movies to introduce to people because nobody has any idea where, where it's going. And it, in a weird way, it does feel like a closer uh, version in uh, tonally of, of what the Stephen King short story was for children of the corn than yeah. the children of the corn movie was. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's one of the things that I, I, I was thinking about just in, in general when I was watching that is like, I had uh, uh, maybe revised children of the corn, the movie in my head to be like a little bit more violent and it is violent, in that sense, uh, that it begins, you know, with an act of pretty cruel violence, like slitting the throat of a child and throwing in front of a car. But this one is just kind of maybe more my sensibility, which is, it just kind of reinforces, like, maybe I'm into, like, European violence. (laughs) 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 There's also, there's another great 70s uh, killer kid movie called The The Devil Times Five. uh, I haven't seen that. uh, Oh man, it, it's a, it's a really fun one to seek out. It's like the, it's a group of like children that are in a, that show up on a doorstep of, you know, like an isolated cabin. And, uh, it turns out that they're, they were, uh, in a, uh, a mental facility truck that crashed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so like one of them dresses as a nun and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, the other ones are, it, it's, it's crazy. I think, uh, 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 what's his name? Leaf Garrett is one of the kids. Oh, what? Um, yeah, it is. It, it's a, this bizarre thing. It, it was like a staple at the Alamo Weird Wednesday, Terror Tuesday stuff for a long time in the the early aughts. But that that is a, a one that I highly recommend. If you like Who Can Kill a Child, it's not as like deeply disturbing as that movie is. This one's a little bit more seventies drive-in fun. Uh, but if you if you definitely dig, uh, you know, kids killing people in drastic ways, they they kill a woman by putting piranha in her bathtub in one of the scenes. So See, that's, that's elaborate. That's good. Yeah. I like that, that. Right up your alley. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm it's, I'm uh, working with child actors and having um, parents agree to things. I'm, I'm finding that right now. Cause I'm actually prepping to direct a short and it is, a, there's a child who does some terrible things <laughs> and a couple other. Go children. on who say terrible things. And it's, it's a really interesting thing to kind of be working with the parents and deciding like which parents are, cause there could be some, there are some parents who are just like, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll let my kid do any of this. You know, like for instance, when I was talking about like, like COVID safety and like all the, the plans that we're putting into place for, for, you know, making our production. Some of the parents were just like, yeah, 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 whatever. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you need to listen to this. <laughs> like how we're trying to keep your child safe. And the same thing happened for, um, in terms of, of kind of going over like what the child actor would have to do and the kind of themes that were maybe more adult. And some parents are just like, like, sure, 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 whatever. And then there's the rare parent that I'm really happy that I get to work with um, at least one who's just like, oh, I understand these are adult, but my, you know, like my child, like we've had a talk about it and what it means. And, um, and they understand, you know, that it's, it's not condoning anything that there's, that there's, um, a, a different layer underneath. And you're like, oh, wow, thank you. But getting 
those parents at any point in time to agree to these roles for kids is just, it's kind of, it's tricky because you don't want to exploit the child and you don't want to use a child who's clearly being exploited by the parents. But sometimes those are people, the only people who are available. It's so weird. It's so weird. (laughs) That's wild. It's also not terribly surprising. I don't think, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm kind thinking of, of the dad and Magnolia that's got the kill oh. in the quiz show. Right. Um, uh, while uh, we're talking about short stories becoming feature films, specific, uh, specifically Stephen King ones, I want to I wanted to pitch you guys an idea, and I'm sure there are holes in this idea that I am not seeing, but I'm curious what you guys make of it. All right, I feel like if if the problem with taking a short story and turning it into a feature film is like I was saying before, sort of robbing it of some of its punch or power by by expanding it. I feel like you could make a fortune if like one of the studios were to say, we're going to make a movie. It's called Skeleton Crew. And we're getting four or five directors together. They're each picking a story from Stephen King's Skeleton Crew, their favorite one, and they're writing it and they're directing it. And it's going to be an anthology movie, sort of like what they were trying to do with uh the Twilight Zone movie. Like, and and you could have a whole series of Stephen King movies based on his short story collections. You could even have sequels to them if you know they did well enough. You you could maintain the integrity of the short stories, and I think you could come up with like really interesting results. But I'm also sort of partial to anthology shit. Like I'm just a, right. a sucker for that for that format. They kind of t- tried that already with the uh, Cat's Eye. Cat's Eye takes like what four short stories. Um, and merges them all into one narrative with uh, the cat being the through line to all of it, right? Yeah, I kind of like Cat's Eye. Yeah, um, I like Cat's Eye too. I don't, I, I don't know a lot about Cat's Eye. I would have to look into like you know who who actually directed that. I, I, I don't know. That was uh, Louis Teague. Oh yeah. well, there you go. Who did Cujo? But yeah, my my version of this is more. I'm I'm more thinking of the Twilight Zone the movie approach. You know, where where you've got different directors and each each segment has a different stamp on it. I just think that would be really cool if they did something like that. I think I'm, I'm, I might be in disagreement with you. I love short stories that get adapted into features. And that might be just because I write and publish a lot of short stories. And um, I will often adapt my own into features because of the kind of manner that I was taught to write short stories being that they are, um, they're only kind of small bits of a much larger world. So it's, it's really fun to try to figure out, you know, cause you're, you're always trying to start the, you know, like in medias res, whatever, um, you know, middle of the story and the feature gives you like so much more to play with. Um, and, and I just, I think that it's great also handing those off to other people because, you know, also in the case with Children of the Corn, the short story, there's just so much to explore. I don't know that it has thus far been explored to the best of its ability, but there's just an entire world that could have been um, built in and, and, and that could have been in the Children of the Corn movie and hopefully maybe will be in the new one. And I just think that, I just appreciate that so much more than novels because with novels, I think a single novel um, like adaptation for, for instance, I often think that a single novel could be multiple movies. Um, 
And then I kind of hate when people shove and try to like adapt a novel into one 90 minute movie when you're like, yeah, you did not get all the themes. There's no possible way. Um, It it just, it kind of bothers me when I'm watching those. I can tell the ones that are adapted into from, from short stories. So the same thing, you know, like, um, oh my God, Brokeback Mountain, you know, Um, that short story is phenomenal. And it's written in the way that I expect short stories to be written, where there is often a summation of an entire story that could be huge and explored in so many different ways written in a single sentence, but it's like it blunts you in the short story. And then in the adaptation of the feature, it gives you so much to play with where you could like actually build out an entire scene from it. Anyway, that's that's my diatribe. But I I love uh, movies that are adapted from shorts. There might be something there because uh, the track record for King shorts being adapted is actually pretty damn good. Like the you shorts and novellas, you know, that's the Stand by Me's and the Shawshanks and the uh, the Mist, you know, territory. There, those are all like over a hundred pages, though. There's a little bit more substance than something like Children of the Corn. Yeah, or like you know, I'm thinking of. Uh, Crouch End, which is my favorite right. Stephen King short story. That can't be more than 30, 40 pages. And they expanded that out when they they did a Nightmares and Dreamscapes uh, series at some point. They mangled the shit out of that. Those, the, those episodes were an hour long. You know, they weren't entirely successful, but I did think that they were truer to the source material. I see what see what April is saying. And I, and I totally agree that if you're the the original author and you're expanding it yourself, you know, I can totally imagine how that would be, um, how that would be attractive. Look, I'm just, I'm just a sucker for anthology <laughs> shit and I want to see more of it. So of course I'm going to come down on the oh, side man. of that. Stop you dragging know? us into your little, uh, project of trying to get more anthology. I'm going to need know? each one of you to pick a short story from night shift. We're going to make <laughs> this thing and be millionaires. I'm telling you. <laughs> Why do y'all think they don't make more anthology movies? Do you think it's just too complicated? Like, like I know that they do a lot of uh, like scare package. I just saw that the other day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's pretty solid. Um, yeah. I guess you see anthology stuff at a, a lower budgetary level, but you don't see it given the prestige treatment so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not, not much anymore. I just, they just don't make money. Right. I, I think that's, yeah. what's the last one was a movie 43. Maybe it's a comedy anthology, oh, but Jesus, that was terrible. But you know that it's terrible, but it had a big, cast you know hugh jackman had you know balls under his chin you know it's mm-hmm. like yeah i'm trying to remember if there's any if there's another one i mean i grew up kind of in an era of anthology stuff right it's like twilight zone the movie tales from the dark side the movie mm-hmm. um uh, body bags just, remember body bags body bags correct yeah cat's eye it, it seems like anthologies from like the 60s through the 80s were were very common because you had all those uh uh, like was it Black Sabbath is is a great one, you know, mm-hmm. um, and like the original Tales from the Crypt movie in the seventies, and Hammer did a bunch of anthology stuff. Yeah, but I Hammer see, did a ton uh, of those. The thing that yeah. you're talking about though, too, and something that will for me make or break an anthology is your your framing story, and I right. think that the ones that are really successful are the ones that have a, a set tone in place already for the directors to follow. Um, and you know, like anything from uh, Twilight Zone or Tales from the Crypt is going to be something that like.
like we know already what that tone is. And even though directors will be bringing different styles to it, they still know that they have to kind of fit into um, a certain space or a certain thing. And, and so I think there's like a kind of cohesiveness to those that, um, that we appreciate as audiences that we don't always hit on for, anthologies. And that becomes kind of an issue where there's like maybe not an overarching producer that works on every single one to try to, you know, keep it in line. So that it feels like a movie, you know, it's kind of like the difference between um, short story collections, for instance, like the ones that are like in literary stuff, um, particularly is uh, the ones that sell best have um, linked stories like they mm-hmm. always, always, always sell better. So agents are always like, well, are the stories linked? And the ones that don't sell well are the ones that are, you know, like very disparate and they have different different themes, different things that it doesn't quite hold together. Like we're still looking for an album, you know, like some kind of uh, cohesiveness to it. And I just don't know that we always get those with anthologies. I mean, you're, you're right. A lot of the the more like not successful versions that we've gotten recently um, even though I, I really like, you know, the VHS movies and I really like the, uh, the ABCs of death for what they're, what they're doing, they, they don't have a cohesiveness. You're right. It, it's everything is, it's such a, a whiplash of, of a uh, tone, you know, from moment to moment. And, and you're, it, it just become, you're, it feels kind of like aimless. It just feels a little unfocused and, and just, a like a very loud conversation that you're coming into and you're picking up little pieces here or there, yeah. you know, from, from, you know, uh, in a party or something. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the segments aren't great on their own or anything. I think it's right. just like in terms of like audience engagement outside of, for instance, like, um, like people who just watch horror, you know, like they're going to watch those movies because they're like really interested to see what directors are doing. But in terms of like mainstream success and why we're not putting money behind them, it's, it's, there's, there's not, to me, I don't think that that's there right now. Uh, I don't think the studios are taking into account my feelings and that's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well i think I, your idea is good with the stephen king anthology of just taking short stories and adapting them and i think that that's something that if you know what a stephen king anthology is supposed to look like and all directors are kind of given that directive i think it could really work yeah i think it'd be fun but i yeah. but i also i agree i i can't disagree with anything you've said you're you're probably right you don't have to say that just to be nice to me. No, no, I'm not. Here. I'm not. If, if I disagreed, <laughs> I would absolutely believe me. If I disagreed, I would tell you, but you're, you're, I you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do I. So do I believe we me. We can be Bert and Vicky. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, I, I remember hearing like 10 years ago or so, or that there was a point where Warner brothers almost launched a new twilight zone movie. And I think it was going to be an anthology thing. And, and Chris Nolan was was spearheading it. Oh. I remember being so excited by that. And then the whole thing just fell apart for, oh. for one reason or another. Probably because he had a $250 million script he wanted to shoot or some shit. <laughs> you know? But, uh, but man, yeah. I, I, Somebody will do it. I mean, it, it makes me wonder if, if, um, if just the thought now is, is to take – a bunch of those uh, anthology style things and just make it TV, you know, cause I, I could imagine Jordan Peele having done it if he didn't spearhead the twilight zone relaunch. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think Jordan Peele could have pulled, pulled off a, a great anthology. Yeah. Um, 
you know, but yet it just feels like that seems to be the thing. It's like, if you're going to go that route, then, you know, relaunch a creep show or relaunch a, a tales from the crypt or twilight zone. It's like, that seems to be the in, uh, inkling, like don't do a, a movie anthology, just make a, a TV series. Yeah. I just want to see it on the big screen. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm being extremely selfish in this, in this argument, but, uh, right. but you're, you, yeah, you guys it. are right. You're, you're right. So is there anything else that we want to touch upon on children of the corn? I mean, there's a, there's a whole religion angle that we can, we can uh, get into, but I feel like that might be a very lengthy discussion and we've already been at it for an hour. So I'm sorry. I keep getting sidetracked, but I I love the religion aspect of it. I love that fire and brimstone shit. I want more of that kind of thing. And, and horror movies, you know, just being a Catholic, it's, just speaks to me. <laughs> it's a or thing we talked about on this on this show before because Stephen King has a that's like a running theme in his work. Um, you know, King versus organized religion. This this mm-hmm. this idea of like distrust and how there's always always a seedy underbelly to it. I, I'm not sure there is a King property where there's a religious aspect introduced to the story, and then it turns out everything's fine. <laughs> you know, it's it's you know what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah yeah, yeah it's always like. <laughs> Oh, he's a preacher, huh? Like, oh, what did this guy fucking do? Like, yeah, he's, he's got to be a werewolf or a child murderer or fucking, you know, something <laughs> like that. You know, that's that's him raving, waving a red flag at you. Um, but that's I love that predictability, though. It makes me so happy. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> and and Children of the Corn, this short story, you know, th- this th- there's a number of King short stories where it's like a couple. They're in a car. They arrive at a, a location or a town or something. Things are not as they seem and shit goes downhill. You know, there's rainy season in Nightmares and Dreamscapes and a couple can moves into a town and, you know, everyone's like, I gotta be worried about the frogs are coming or, or some shit like that. <laughs> and then, you know, fucking frogs rain from the sky and just destroy this this couple or uh, from the same collection. There's a, uh, you know, they got a hell of a band, which is the cheesiest fucking short story but i love it it's like the this this couple drives into a town and it's it's like rock and roll heaven you know but you can't (laughs) leave once you're there and there's a concert every night where like the big bopper and fucking jim morrison are putting on a show or some nonsense Oh, i love that that's like apple oh it's so good (laughs) first apple reference on the show um that uh, like uh that's a little subgenre to I mean, to horror, but also to Stephen King himself. He likes that little setup. And this is a really good example of that. One thing that I'd like to point out is is uh, a, a great little bit in the short story is hearing the child preacher on the radio after all the shit went down and yeah. how it, that turns into like a page long discussion of how religions use children to indoctrinate the you know their followers right and how and they give example after example of you know it, it's very uh, righteous gemstonesy right you know i can imagine them <laughs> yeah. talking about you know baby baby billy or whatever you know it's like mm-hmm. you know and that that is a very interesting angle of uh that i think you could approach either a remake or a redo of the story of you know showing how it's this crazy creature that lives behind you know the rows of corn uh, you know, is using these children and indoctrinating them in the same way that, uh, you know, all religions seem to do, especially the fire and brimstone ones, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it, it becomes a, a very powerful, you know, condemnation of, of organized religion yet again from Stephen King. 
Mm-hmm. I, I'd be fascinated to talk, just talk to that guy at length about religion. Like, oh, yeah. you know, I, 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 I have not seen a, a lengthy interview with him about it, but he must have a whole bunch of shit to say. I've read a few interviews where he's talked, he's been questioned about it, but he's pretty much just does the, you know, I believe in God, I don't believe in organized religion, you know, and that's kind of where he leaves it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's probably going you know, to, it would, you'd think you'd have this amazing buildup of, you know, interesting, you know, childhood trauma or something. And it really just boils down. I was like, nah, I just don't like organized religion. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that the, I think maybe, what is it? Like the only role that he ever played in one of his adaptations or something, or you know, the first, the, the first ones that he did was playing a priest in Pet Cemetery. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was one of the bigger ones. Yeah. Yeah. One of, yeah. One of the, the first or the bigger ones. I just like that he chose the priest role. <laughs> yep. When we were on that tour, we went to that cemetery where they filmed that. Mm. And uh, they told us that he used to, uh, like when he was very young, you know, like late teens, early 20s, he used to yeah. just come hang out in that cemetery. Apparently, it's like one of the, I don't know if it still is, but at the time was the biggest, there was some classification for cemetery, not above ground, but I forget what it was. And and I don't want to say the wrong thing, but it was <laughs> okay. that fucking that location is huge. Like that that cemetery goes off in every direction as far as the eye can see, and you can drive through it for like you know ten fifteen minutes. Oh, wow. um, it's it's crazy. Uh, and isn't it right across the street from his uh, his house? Uh, like, I don't know about across the street, but it's a pretty pretty quick drive. All that right. shit, you know, all the shit we saw that day was. Uh, you know, they were it was very clustered and close together, but it's also not like a sprawling metropolis. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he 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 like wanted everything to be so close for Pet Cemetery because he just wanted to be able to drop by set any day, and he did. <laughs> so he, he he needed to coach Fred Gwynn in into best. getting the right main accent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sweet. Is there anything else that you want to want to talk about uh, children of the corn wise or or do we think we about got it? I think we got it. I think we got it. I yeah. still like I this movie for what it is. And I, I still right. think it's worth a, a fun watch. Um, it's very different from the short story. And I would love if someone had really adapted the short story. But, you know, we'll see. Maybe they've Let's, done that in the new one. Maybe the guy that wrote the. Point Break and Total Recall sequels is uh, or remakes, not sequels, uh, has has cracked the code on this one. But um, yeah, that remains to be seen. Yeah, something tells me a prequel is not the thing that I'm looking for. But if it can, <laughs> maybe it can stand on its own. You know, like if it's you know separate enough um, from the property. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. In your words, whenever he kills like 17 kids, like in the first 10 minutes. Oh, I'm going to be, be like so yep, excited. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm open to whatever I'm open to whatever and just seeing what they do because um you know at least it will be different and I'm curious what it looks like you know they they quite famously um or famously thanks to the recent headlines uh shot this thing during during the COVID pandemic and I'm curious what that actually looks like in action I'm curious yeah. if you can tell if it makes any difference you know I saw like a a photo of like the kids standing there and the kids were all you know, like six feet apart or something, <laughs> you know, but I couldn't tell if like, well, this is, this is just the photo they released to sort of illustrate their onset safety, or this is actually indicative of what the movie is going to look like. So, mm-hmm. 
So I'm very curious to see what yeah, shakes out on that. Can't you imagine that like crane shot of just all the kids peppered throughout a street six feet apart? That could be creepy. <laughs> Moving just in unison, but staying perfectly six feet apart from each other. The entire <laughs> yes. Like a flock of birds. Yeah, yeah. That'd be, yeah. It'd be pretty creepy, actually. Yeah, I actually think horror is like one of the few genres that could that could be okay with socially distanced um, actors. Uh, I mean, I'm curious to see how it works. <laughs> April, you said you're about to uh, uh, helm a short during yeah. this. What is your anxiety level like going into that with, you know, the, the pandemic being what it is? I mean, it, I would feel more anxious if I didn't have producers who were just on top of it with spreadsheets on uh, a checklist of the things that we need to do for safety. So I think that if I were working with other people, I would feel very weird about it. But mm -hmm. uh, the really cool part is that I had already designed it for very few actors and for a lot of social distancing. And so it, it works. It's just a matter of um, devising a new way to shoot, which means that you have waves of the crew coming in to do their job. And, you know, no one, not everyone is all in the room at the same time. And, and uh, yeah, I think for us, we got best possible scenario for how to do it. But I do wonder in terms of like the features that I've written that are set up, like, I don't know when those will go into production. Like one is set in fucking Florida and like, <laughs> like, Florida's got a lot going on right now, you guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd say you can give it a year and, and the population will be reduced by about two thirds. And so you'll have all the, all yeah. the space to film. Yeah. I mean, maybe Florida will be like the, the perfect place to film because they'll have cleared out half of the population by then. Who knows? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and also like, I think scientists agree that like COVID doesn't hit kids nearly as hard as it hits uh, older people and, and uh, adults. Mm -hmm. So just Bugsy Malone, everything, everything is now. <laughs> gonna be you know a kid gangster movie or a kid <laughs> horror movie or, yeah, yeah. i think that's the way to do it yep <laughs> <laughs> perfect timing uh, for my good awesome. remake <laughs> right <laughs> people are gonna love it right uh so april is there anything that you want to plug while we're uh, while we wrap up here is there where can people find you and and find your stuff uh, I mean, uh, I'm, people can usually find me spending too much time talking about defunding the police on Twitter, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's Welcome. the content you're after uh, with some genre movie things peppered in between. Uh, also, just, you know, Switchblade Sisters is our podcast and, you know, we talk a lot about craft and process and it's one of my favorite things to dissect how people made movies, specifically genre, because there's so much invention happening. So, yeah, you know, Switchblade Sisters. Right on. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And and just on a personal note, thank you for getting me to reread this. It had been a it had been a long time, and I'm I'm pretty glad I did. Good. <laughs> thanks for having me on, guys. <laughs> Many thanks to April Wolf for joining us for that episode. I love April. April is so great. We got a busy week here at the King Cast, so we got we got a few things to uh, to tell you guys about. Usually. Mm -hmm. Usually uh, we give you in the main feed one episode a week, but uh, lately we've been dropping some of our Patreon bonus episodes into the feed and we got a doozy for you this Friday. We will be dropping our Thomas Jane episode where 
<laughs> we were supposed to really be talking about the mist and we do talk about the mist quite a lot. Uh, but that conversation goes all over the place. Yes. Um, uh, interviewing Tom Jane is sort of like interviewing a, a wild bull. You, uh, you get your handle on it and then, and then just try to stay on. Uh, he is not easily corralled into, uh, into a standard interview. And, th- and that's why we love uh, Tom Jane. It's it's a wild conversation. I think people are going to like that one. You know, I, I spent I met Tom Jane for the first time on the set of The Mist. I was on The Mist set for about a week, and uh, we talk a lot about that. And I tell some some stories, take some credit for some decisions made in the movie, whether I deserve it or not. Uh, and all the while, Tom Jane is uh, is uh, smoking his uh, his pipe. <laughs> throughout he's good up and he's he's great up until the point where i ask him why he doesn't wear shoes and uh then he and then he sort of snaps um but in a good-natured way and uh the the question needed to be asked but but that is a that is a solid listen you will not be bored listening to this conversation uh, it's, it's a wild listen man it's it's uh yeah it's yeah. super fun it uh, debuted on our patreon a few weeks ago and we have a lot of uh stuff that's exclusive to patreon and then we have some stuff that'll be up on patreon for a good time before it reaches the free feed uh if you want access to any of that primo awesome content feel free to jump over to patreon.com slash the king cast mm-hmm. and uh you know give us a, a little bit of money and you get multiple episodes and uh you get to hear them before everybody else word 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 and what do we want to tell them eric about next week's episode next week's episode so this is usually the point where we give you the title we will withhold the guest uh and we will give you the title and give you a chance to read or watch the movie or whatever we are not going to do that this week and the reason why is uh, I guess you'll find out next week, but we will say that this next episode is more akin to the Glenn Mazzara Dark Tower episode mm-hmm. we did, where we mm-hmm. have somebody involved with a King property that tragically isn't happening and is telling us about what it is. Yes, this is this is an extremely interesting episode and it's a fun episode. It's also a little sad, but but yeah, we can't we can't really explain anything about it yet but yeah that's kind of the state of the the king cast world yeah anything else you want to add before we sign off no i'm good all right well then we'll see you guys next week see y'all